0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Bert, and thank you, body, for participating in the Lord's Supper and with all that it means. I want to mention up front, um, infants and toddlers, we have uh, care for them if you need for them to come out. Everyone else needs to stay in the service, but infants and toddlers, we do have care if you want to go out over here. Trying to find a place to put that, but that will do. Thank you for (laughs) the inconvenience of this. Sunday. Hopefully, we won't have too many more like this. It's certainly our uh, plan to be back inside with full services next week at nine thirty and eleven. Those will be that'll be the last Sunday we do it at those times. But we'll be announcing that as we prepare for the fall. A couple of things. One is Grace Connection. These three members that joined this morning. Went through Grace Connection class where we talk a lot about who we are as a church, what it means to be in an elder rule church. A lot of people have never been in a church like that before with that sort of governance. And uh, also, what do we believe? What is it that we believe? So just because you attend the class doesn't mean that we don't assume that you are going to join. But if you want to understand more about the church, that's a good class for you. And if you desire to join, it is required. So let me remind also uh, teenagers, anyone who's 15 years old, this is a good time for you to jump in this class if um, you want to be a full member at 16 years of age. So we'll be holding our next Grace Connection class this coming Saturday morning inside. It'll be a three-hour class Hopefully, it won't be too long before we can go back to the four-week sessions, 4 uh, sessions over four different weeks. But this weekend, the entire class will be done on Saturday morning from 9 to 12, and then Sunday morning as well during the first service, we'll have uh, an, uh, another class. So, again, thank you for being here this morning, and thank you, Lord, for Clouds and a little breeze and the rain holding off. So I want to ask you, what from the following list would you say is the most difficult Christian virtue for you to practice? What, uh, Above anything else, what of these four would be the most difficult? A, patience, as in waiting for, you fill in the blank. Or, patience In relations with difficult people. Now I realize there are no difficult people in the house today. but So we're talking about relations with other people, right? B, love. Putting yourself or putting others, excuse me, above yourself. C, discipline. In thought, in speech, in spiritual disciplines. Prayer, reading the Bible giving, all of those disciplines, or D, forgiveness for family members, for friends, and for those who hate you and do really bad things to hurt you, against you, publicly, privately. Which of those Is the most difficult. I'm guessing that the last portion of the last option may be the most difficult for most of us. Forgiving those who hate us and do evil things against us. As Sean Cross has said, we are never more like Jesus than when we forgive our enemies. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, it changed everything. Well, Not exactly everything, but many things, and even the things that were not changed are now understood in a far greater capacity. No longer are people judged by the law, but they are judged by their belief in, or failure to believe in, Jesus. Sin separates us from God, but eternal justice will fall one way or the other for all of us on judgment day. On whether based on whether we repent of our sins and believe Jesus died for us or not. let me say that again, and think about this. We're going to talk about this much in much more detail at some point. Justice will fall one way or the other, based on our relationship with Jesus and His cross. Justice was actually accomplished at Calvary but it will not be until judgment day the last day when it falls one way or the other there is no justice in a purely human in purely human relationships but justice will be done we're thinking about that a lot today knowing the mercy and grace of God through Jesus as we do It can be difficult to understand what place there is for a portion of Scripture like Psalm 137, even though it resides in the Old Testament. We read it and we're like, oh, wow, this really makes me uncomfortable. This difficult psalm, though, gives us the opportunity to think more deeply about what is being said and then to think about what is the same in the Old and New Testament. Some things are the same. Also, what is different? And how we should live in view of the differences. Psalm 137. My guess is that you don't frequently go to this psalm to draw comfort and um, mercy and peace from the Lord. It is, though, the word of God. So as it is read, try to make sense of this cry for justice. Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? I will be reading from the English Standard Version. I know it's no fun getting up and down from those those lawn chairs once you reach a certain age. At least that's what I'm told. I'm not quite there yet. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof. Roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be seated. Before we think about the bigger picture, it's it's good for us to get an understanding of this psalm that would have shocked zero, zero people in any land. In that era, there's not one person who would have been offended or shocked by this kind of language in the day that it was written. Although there is no title given for the psalm, nor is the author listed, it does not take long to learn the setting for Psalm 37. The author was by the Euphrates River in Babylon, having been taken captive after the fall and destruction. Of Jerusalem. And the Psalmist is not alone in his mourning of the fall of Judah. All in the community were in deep sadness. Why wouldn't they be? When they were in Jerusalem, they sang songs about God's protection and his blessings on the people of Zion. They had forgotten, of course, the songs that also warned of this very sort of punishment if the nation turned its affections. From Yahweh. He now had their attention. But they were in no mood to sing songs about God's goodness and protection. Of the nation of Israel. Particularly at the behest of their captors who were mocking them. Oh yes, you who said Yahweh would protect you. Where is he now? Sing us some of those songs. We'd love to hear them. They had hung their harps on the trees that were near the river. So that they could weep together. Harps were instruments of joy. It'd be like us hanging our banjos up. You know, because the banjo is just not appropriate. For the kind of music, the kind of songs that we need to sing now. Songs of lament. Songs of regret. We thought about singing Psalm 137 from the Psalter this morning. But it would be like last week, to the tune of Amazing Grace, and it just didn't seem right. And David and Tristan rightly chose not to create such cognitive dissonance for us. Even if you played it in a minor tune, the tune just doesn't fit a message. In verse 5, the psalmist is not concerned about forgetting the city that sits on a hill in the land formerly known as Israel and then Judah. It's not like he's saying, now, what was that city where I used to live? He's not worried about that. What he's saying is that his heart is fully committed to the kingdom of God. He's pledging his undying allegiance to God's kingdom and refusing to allow his heart To be captured by the new and shiny and compelling. It was almost impossible to think that Yahweh's followers would prevail. When from all appearances, it looked as though Yahweh would fall into the waistband of the broken down and defeated gods. That's how you knew your God was stronger than the other God. Because you whipped them. And so where's Yahweh now? Think what you will, wrote the psalmist. But Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, Yahweh, is my highest joy. And may I be punished ever so severely if my heart yields to this culture. Thus far we have identified with the captives and and admired their commitment. But now we come to verses 7 and 9. Verses that give us a lot of trouble, where the writer calls down curses on the Edomites who laughed at Jerusalem's fall and participated in the loot of the city, looting of the city, and curses down on the Babylonians. The Edomites, you may recall, were descendants of Esau, thus they were cousins of the Israelites, and they just laughed when it when it happened, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and they ran in and looted the city along with the Babylonians. An entire book of the Old Testament is devoted to a prophecy of Edom's destruction because of their folly. Of course, Obadiah is the smallest book in the Old Testament, but it is an entire book talking about Edom's punishment. As I stated earlier, absolutely no one would have been shocked by the prayer calling for vengeance against the Edomites and Babylonians. Even though Judah was being punished for its sins, Babylon was going to pay for treating the people of God like this. The Edomites were going to pay. They had no cause, Babylon did, to destroy Jerusalem. The Edomites had no cause for gloating. And this call for vengeance was truly a call for justice. What Babylon and Edom dished out, they would receive. That's what the author prayed. That's what would happen. Look, what do you think when you hear an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Do you think that's harsh? It's fair, isn't it? There is justice in that, is there not? In fact, before the Mosaic Law... People operated sort of in a Hatfields and McCoy kind of world where you take one of ours down, we take two of yours down. We have to up the ante. And the Lord said, no. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He said that in Deuteronomy, not just Romans. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord, and then Paul adds, if I'm not mistaken, I will repay in Romans. Look, why does God say leave vengeance to me? Because we cannot meet out equal punishment no matter how hard we try. What, what is that? What is meeting it out on a personal level? That's what governments are for. Now, governments go bad. Most of, Many of them are bad in the world today. But, that, but the uh, admonition to, to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was really a grace and a mercy and a calming of the spirits. Most likely, the judgment called for in verse 9 had happened to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, to Judean babies, as verse 8 seems to indicate. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a synopsis of Psalm 137. On the back of the card that you received uh, this morning when you arrived, you're going to find three lists intended to help us get in the direction of trying to make sense of why a passage like this one finds its way into the sacred scriptures uh, that we hold dear. These lists, which are not comprehensive by any means, are meant to serve as a guide for further study and as a whetting of the appetite for uh, deeper Insight and reflection into this word. So let's look at the first of these three lists, which tells us what has not changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the first truth that we need to acknowledge is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. God is holy and God is merciful. That's the first point. I frequently hear people say something like, you know, frankly, I like the God of the New Testament better than the God of the Old Testament. Oh, if only one were able to choose his own God, molded from his own thoughts in his own human image. But wait, that is exactly what we tend to do. We domesticate God, we make him who we want to be. If we want to judge other people, that's what, who God is. If we want to love everybody and just all get along, that's who God is. There is not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. There is, but he loves and cares for people in the Old Testament, and his wrath is revealed in the New Testament. He is the same God, and we relate to him by what we do with the second point. Two. People are counted righteous before God by believing His promises. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans four three says, quoting Genesis fifteen six. Paul didn't make that up; he's quoting Genesis fifteen six. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Romans ten thirteen says. People are counted righteous before God by believing His promises. Third, God cares deeply for His people. Psalm 137 notwithstanding, it is not inappropriate to say that the Bible is a love letter. It's not inappropriate, but it is incomplete. To say that the Bible is a love letter. The Bible is a love letter. To God's children. From God to his children. And like (coughs) all loving fathers. (coughs) God must say difficult things at times. God's love for his people though. Is consistent. The author of Hebrews quoted both Deuteronomy 31. And Psalm 118. When, in verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 13, he he wrote, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. God's love and care for his people never changes. Fourth, those who do not believe oppose both God and his people. Now, this may sound like an unfounded assumption to you. You may think, well, look, I know a lot of Christians who are not opposing God. They, they, they think they love God, and they surely are, are good friends to me. I get that. I understand. Remember from last week's message, though, when Romans 5 was referenced, God says that all those who refuse to believe his promises are counted as enemies of God. And that sounds horrific until you recognize God's holiness and our sinfulness. And then it's very different. Before he was saved, the apostle Paul was certain that he was doing God's will. He was known as Saul then, but he was certain that he was doing God's will by putting Christians to death until Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus drew the lines very clearly when he said, Whoever is not with me is against me. He continued and prophesied that one's relationship with him may well put her at odds with their family. Do not be surprised if people dislike you simply because you believe in Jesus. Now, they're going to say other things going to say you don't believe in allowing people to be who who they were meant to be. I thought earlier when I said ladies and gentlemen, that would offend somebody. So they're going to use other things, but ultimately it's your belief in Jesus and belief in scripture that will cause people to oppose you. And you know how different things are now than they were 10 years ago. Along these lines. It's probably going to get worse. I hope not. I hope. We have revival in our land. And we come to our senses. But it's probably going the wrong way. One last thing that is the same. In both the Old and New Testaments. Is the enemies of God. Will be judged. Perhaps the primary reason. That people like the God of the New Testament. Better than the God of the Old Testament. Is that they hope. The day of judgment has passed. Alas, they haven't read the four gospels clearly, nor have they remembered the book of Revelation. The day of judgment is in the future. Do not forget the epistles either, all over the epistles. Romans 1.18 begins a long section about God's judgment of of sin and sinners. For the wrath of God is revealed or being revealed in the Greek from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's a sobering thought and yet one that must be believed if we hold Scripture to be true. The enemies of God will be judged. So that's the same in the Old and New Testament. Much has changed, though, between the Old and New Testament. So let's think a little bit about what has changed in the New Testament. Number one... The assurance of our relationship with God is in the cross, not in defeating our enemies. When God's covenant relationship was with Israel, so long as the people loved and obeyed God, he protected them and defeated their enemies. But that was the problem. They were unable to love and obey him consistently, and even their obedience was flawed, David being a perfect example. In the book of Galatians, where we're told there was a need for the cross because of their failure to obey, Paul addressed those who said that we are saved, yes, by believing Jesus, but plus keeping the law. Paul was bitterly opposed to a works theology, knowing that our only hope for salvation, our only hope of standing before God clean and pure is to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. Repent of our sins and believe in what Jesus did for us. Paul identified deeply with the cross, going so far as to say in Galatians 6.14, Be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first difference. Another difference is our prayers for those who oppose us should be for God to show mercy not judgment. Well, this is, this is huge. The writer of Psalm 137 prayed that God would avenge the nation of Israel and would do to the Babylonians what had been done to them. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10:1 about his opponents, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for Jews is that they may be saved. This is a huge difference. Third, Jerusalem is no longer the locus of God's blessing, but rather it is found in the temple of the Holy Spirit, which in the New Testament can be either the individual believer or the church, both local and and universal. Look, I believe Jerusalem has a big role in the new heavens and the new earth, so I'm not trying to make any point with this. I'm just saying that in the past... God's blessings were on his covenant nation when they were rightly related to him. In these days, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you probably think that the individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit alone. And that's true, it is. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So be careful what you do to it. But in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And if anyone messes with this temple, him will God destroy. Now, we know he's talking about the church in First Corinthians 3 because it's in the Greek, it's y'all, it's not you. He didn't say, do you not know that you, 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 all are individual temples of the Holy Spirit, you are the temple? He said, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't mess with, with this temple, Bert talked about the unity in the church. It's a serious thing to foment disunity in the church. So, here's a question. Is God done with the nation of Israel? I think Romans 11 makes it clear that the answer to that is emphatically no. Many Jews will be saved before or when Jesus returns, but it is equally true in Galatians 3, 7, Romans 4, that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, and they're the ones who receive God's blessings. Will Jewish people go to heaven because they're God's chosen people? If they believe in Jesus, they will. Will Gentiles who now have been brought into the family, some Gentiles go to heaven? If they believe in Jesus, they will. In the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people in Jerusalem so long as they obeyed him, which is why the author of Psalm 137 can point back and say, I cannot forget Jerusalem. That's the center of God's blessings. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, who is just as much God the Father and Son, dwells within the children of God and the church of God. Not only the universal church, but also the local church. So, who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? One, two, three. Individuals, local church, universal church. So much to say. So much more to say about that, but not time. One last change between the Old and New Testaments is judgment for unbelievers is characterized as eternal rather than temporal. One of the things that we tend to do as New Testament believers is to look back to the Old Testament and we rightly see the Trinity all over it. We see God's ways all over the Old Testament. But things were not as clear then as they are now. It, for the most part, like I say, when God showed his strength for Israel, it meant defeating the others, killing them on the battlefield, just making them slaves to the nation of Israel. That was how people understood God's blessing. And so judgment was immediate. It was not as clear to the Old Testament writers that the afterlife for unbelievers was eternal. Once again, easy for us to look back and understand it. And, and, and believe me, the understanding grew. My goodness, look at the last two verses of Isaiah. Not now, just write it down and look it up later. Look at the last two verses of Isaiah that Jesus quoted and and it was during the time of Jesus ministry that it really became clear that he, that that life or destruction was not for the moment but it was and is and will be eternal the new testament writers understood what was at stake and they emphasized God's long-suffering for unbelievers. They wrote with an urgency for believers to share Jesus with the lost. Again, so much more to be said from both lists so far, but we're going to end with some application. How shall we live in view of these differences? One, thank God frequently for his mercy to you through Jesus Christ. I remember well, as several of you do also, how Albert McKinney, one of the founding members of Grace Community Church, would always begin a word of testimony with, I want to thank God for my salvation. I had heard that so many times over the years that I thought, okay, what's next? I know it's, we have to say, it. but one day the Lord said no. It's not Albert who was saying something unnecessary. It's you not saying something that is necessary. I want to thank God for my salvation. Albert always knew that if it were not for the Lord's forgiveness, he would be eternally condemned. We would do well to ask God for a heart like Albert's, thanking God for his mercy. Second, lean into covenant community where differences between man's kingdom and God's kingdom become clear. How did we become so shallow and tell me that this is not a great temptation for you? How did we become so shallow that we think the plans and goals that we have for our lives are God's plans and goals for our lives? Do we really think that God's kingdom looks like the best version of America? Is that what we think? Uh, Look, I am so guilty in thinking that financial security and meaningful work and military strength for our land is part and parcel of God's kingdom. I'm so guilty of that that it's difficult for me to pretend like I don't live that way. I'm not preaching at you. I'm... I'm saying the word for all of us. Man, I need to be right down there hearing this. God's kingdom values are upside down from the world's values. And they have far more to do with giving and helping and true service to the church family and to mankind and turning the cheek. When your enemy strikes you and go in the extra mile, when your enemy compels you to go one mile, you know the story, right? And by the way, when someone strikes you on the cheek, if it's an unbeliever, turn the other cheek. If it's a believer, you may be called to turn the other cheek. If it's a member of Grace Community Church, see the elders. We have to deal with that. Don't apply everything that's meant for us in our relationship with unbelievers to our relationship with one another. Principles we follow, yes, when somebody is just upset with us and mean and mad and whatever. If they're a believer, there are times that love covers a multitude of sins and love one another earnestly, 1 Peter 4.8 says, because love covers a multitude of And people are going to sin against us and we've got to do it. But if it's a serious issue, we need to deal with it in the covenant. But in in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier could say, Hey, Jew, carry my bag for a mile. Do you think Jews knew exactly how far a mile was? Do you think more often than not they'd take that bag and just... Can you imagine the impact of someone saying, Oh, no, sir, I'll, I'll take this another mile. That's what Jesus was saying. Neither Chris Cuomo nor Tucker Carlson should be our role model for kingdom attitudes. Neither one of them have kingdom attitudes. You may agree very deeply with one or the other. That's not what the kingdom is about. That's not who we're to be. That's why we come to church on Sunday. And why home groups are so helpful to believers seeking to do God's will in a hostile world. Because we see things more clearly in community than we do on our own. We have a long way to go, brothers and sisters, and we need Each other in this life we share in exile. I could say this almost every time he does it. But I so appreciated Tristan's prayer today. In this foreign land in which we live. We surely need each other for the third thought. Which is this. Forgive your enemies. And pray passionately for the lost. This week. When you're tempted to say, that makes me so mad. I can't believe. I, I shouldn't be watching this. Pray for the person. Just stop. Stop where you are and pray for the person. In Romans 9, 3, Paul stated that he would willingly spend eternity in hell in the place of his Jewish Kinsmen, if God would allow it. Now now think about this. These are the people that stirred up riots in the city that had Paul taken out and stoned and left for dead. Beat the mess out of him time and again. Most often it was the Jews who were stirring up the Gentiles to, to punish Paul. Not always, but most cases it was. Paul said, you know, if God would allow it, I would spend eternity in hell in the place of put in the people on the other side of the political aisle from you. If God would just allow it, I would do it. That could not be, of course. Only Jesus can pay for sins. But it was Paul's heart. By the time we encounter the martyrs in Revelation 6, they're crying out, How long, O Lord, are you going to put up with this evil? Avenge us. Once we are fully in the Lord's presence, we will have perfect perspective just like God has. And we will praise him when he judges those who refuse to believe and who opposed both God and his people while they were on earth. And this ties back to Psalm 137, does it not? God's perspective on sin. But just as quickly as we acknowledge the place of Psalm 137 in Scripture, we must return to our passionate prayers and our witness to the lost, which leads us to the last point of the last list. Pray in this weary land. For Jesus' return. Now we truly are back to Psalm 137 when the psalmist wrote Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. The writer in exile longed for the visible presence of Of God. And in the same way, may our hearts long to be in the presence of our Savior. May our focus be eternal, and at the center of our focus, may we see Jesus. So if politics or social movements have mingled with Scripture as the foundation of your hope, chances are. You're discouraged. Big action on our street yesterday. Right down the street from us. 15, 10, 15 police cars showed up. There was a standoff. Man was holed up in the house with a gun. We, we're not going to find a great deal of encouragement in this word. But take heart and be encouraged. The final act. Has not been written. I'll close with these encouraging words. From C.S. Lewis. In mere Christianity. When the author. Walks onto the stage. The play is over. Revelation 22 20. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, thank you for helping me to make sense of Psalm 137, one that has always just almost made me cringe a little bit. I I, I get it, but yet I don't get it. And in, in examining it as closely as I did this week, I think I had a little bit of better understanding. And I surely hope that that has been communicated lord may all of our hearts long for the new jerusalem may we recognize that we are exiles in a foreign land but first peter tells us about this life in exile and how much joy we can have and when jesus our union with christ is on our hearts and minds how much victory over sin And even discouragement we can have. We thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you have. For keeping us the way that you have. And for giving us hope. Hope that is not, well, I just surely hope it'll be so. But is a firm assurance that one day we will be with you. And all this will be done. In the meantime. May we live as those who belong to you. May we be worthy of the name that was used against us in derision. Christians, little Christ. May we not refuse in shame as the Jewish people did in Babylon to sing the songs of Jerusalem. But may we, by faith, sing songs of deliverance even when it gets bad for us, really bad for us in this life. Thank you again for allowing us to be together and for this weather this morning. We commit ourselves afresh and anew to our Savior Jesus, who we acknowledge as the head of our church and the Savior of our souls. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.